Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Bowen Yang. I didn't really have much of a say in the matter because uh, one, I was emotionally drained, and two, um, I was still feeling the shame, and that's the kind of shame that like makes you overeat or uh, apply to grad school. Um, it's like, it's like ultimately, you know, it's not good for you, but you do it anyway. Uh, that and more. But before that, I want to let you know that the next Risk live show is in Los Angeles. We're so thrilled to have that wonderful L.A. show up and running again. David Crabb does such a beautiful job producing the show out there, and it's a phenomenal cast. Andrew Kimler, Jonathan Giuseppe, Jesse Rosen, and Sophia Firm. 7 p.m. on Tuesday, May 17th at the Hotel Cafe. Then on Thursday, May 19th, Risk is back in New York City at Caveat. I'll be there, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Adam Vibe Gunton, Jude Trader Wolf, Ryan Arnold, and Tata Sharice. Another phenomenal show. You can always find tickets to our in-person shows or our live streams of them at risk-show.com tour. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Yoko Miwa trio behind me now. Fabulously talented jazz pianist. Her latest album is called Songs of Joy. And it's a joy for me to be inviting you to join us in honoring Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. 
this May. We thought it would be a special treat to listen back to some of our favorite stories, the life experiences of Asian Americans. This will be the first of four episodes like this in May. The next three will be released on Thursdays. And we always say that listening with an open heart to one another's stories can make a difference. But I invite you to consider other ways to be looking out for one another nowadays in order to build solidarity and keep our communities supportive and safe. That's why I thought it would be nice to include some clips on these four episodes with a hero of mine, someone from whom I have learned so much. Kalayan Mendoza is a lifelong activist with a huge heart. And lately, with all of these incidents of violence in public, including so many hate crime attacks on Asian Americans, Kala has been working with the Asian American Federation and the Nonviolent Peace Force, who you can find at nonviolentpeaceforce.org. So here is Kala now telling me how he welcomes people, how he brings people in to this essential part of our lives. So my organization, Nonviolent Peace Force, is a primary and programmatic partner with the Hope Against Hate campaign, which the Asian American Federation built in the last year in response to anti-Asian violence here in New York City. We have seen a tremendous amount of violence against our elders and folks across our communities. And with the murders of Alyssa Goh and Christina Yuna Lee, it became very clear that we needed to do more to build what we call mutual protection within our communities. And that means everyone has a responsibility and has the ability to intervene and to support survivors in case violence happens. This month alone, we're doing 17 community safety trainings in person across New York City. And what we're really trying to do is empower folks to be upstanders. The bystander effect tells us that people will expect someone else to take action. For those of you that might drive on the freeway, you'll see someone on the side of the freeway and you'll be like, someone else will take care of it. That happens a lot here. And what we want to do is to support folks in building their skills, to practice situational awareness, to be able to intervene, to provide protective accompaniment or even protective presence. Vilma Kari, who she's a Filipina elder who was curb stomped in Midtown Manhattan last year uh, on her way to Easter Mass. The security inside the building closed and locked the doors, but there was someone who was on the street yelling, saying that, I see, sorry, I, I see you, I'm recording, I see you. And even though they didn't physically intervene, Dita Vilma said that she felt safe in that moment. Everyone has the ability to cultivate safety. What we're trying to do is to reimagine safety when it doesn't come down the barrel of a gun and is a shared responsibility of everyone in the community because safety is the one thing that we can all agree upon as human beings that we want for ourselves, our communities, and those who will come after us. Now, Kalyan consistently posts on Twitter and Instagram about the safety trainings that he leads and the various other sorts of direct action that he's involved in. So please look him up 
at Kalayan Mendoza. That's K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. Nonviolent Peace Force does a lot of virtual trainings as well. And there's more information about all of this in the show notes. Let's get to the stories now. They are extraordinary this week. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Nimisha Ladva. But before that, a little something from Christine Lee. And before that, a little something from Bowen Yang, who you know from Saturday Night Live. Uh, the fabulous podcast, Las Culturistas, and the new movie, Fire Island. Bowen is making people laugh all over the world these days. But here's a story that he shared with Risk a few years back that touches on some serious matters as well. Here's Bowen now with a story we call La Cage O'Denny's. So the most meaningful, one of the most meaningful interactions I've had with my mother was when she read aloud to me a transcript of a gay cybersex chat window I left open. Um, and coincidence, that was also the way I came out to her. Uh, so I was 17, uh, I was coming home from school. Uh, my left hand I had my violin case, in my right hand I had a script for our school's production of Anything Goes. Um, and as soon as I set foot in the door, I could feel the air hanging thick. I could immediately tell something was wrong. And I walked upstairs to find my mother slumped into the curvature of her office chair. She'd been crying for hours, it looked like, and in her hand she held the printed chat log. As soon as she saw me, she launched into this like recitation of this locker room role-play fantasy that uh, I was engaging in with this 19-year-old stranger from Texas, as far as I knew. Um, and she read it line by line. She shook the entire time. She mumbled through the words she didn't understand. She stuttered through her accent, and she stopped every few lines to sob. And um, just as she was reading this thing that was, uh, you know, making her worst nightmare come true, uh, which was that her only son was a homosexual. And so I don't remember if I begged her to stop because, of course, it was mortifying. I don't remember if I begged her to stop or uh, if I just stood there speechless. But what I do remember was hating myself for making her feel this sad. And I remember feeling the blood flush out of my face, my eyes widening, and uh, my face going limp just totally paralyzed. And so that's the closest thing I have to a coming out story because uh, unlike most respectable 21st century gays, I did not muster up the courage to approach my parents with the intent to tell them I was gay. And so instead I'm left with uh, like being caught in the act and uh, having it be like a really good episode of To Catch a Predator. Um, <laughs> where like I'm the predator and my mom is like a hysterically weeping Chris Hansen. Um, <laughs> just like reading the transcript. So anyway, um, my parents, who are Chinese immigrants, uh, weren't religious per se, but they did believe in a higher power that happened to hate gay people. <laughs> um, 
And they took issue with homosexuality more on like a base level family values place. And it was about keeping up the family line. I was the only, the only son. And so uh, the immediate aftermath that followed um, the cyber sex outing scandal in our house was uh, the three of us, my father, my mother, and I, having these really overwrought, long conversations in the living room. And then they were all punctuated by these quiet, sad meals uh, where we all just cried into our authentic Chinese dishes. Um, And guys, tofu dishes are seasoned great with teardrops, let me tell you. And so after one such meal on one such day, my dad calls me down to his computer to show me a website for an ex-gay therapy clinic. Um, yeah, well, it was in Colorado Springs, which is two hours from where we lived in Denver. And the name of this clinic was called the Center for Men and Boys, which, like, the name alone is, like, the biggest dick-shaped carrot to dangle in front of self-loathing gay men, Right? So the Center for Men and Boys was run by this man named Scott Sutherland. Now I'm using his quote unquote real name because sidebar, a lot of ex-gay therapists take up aliases because they hop around from town to town uh, to escape like activists and uh, to avoid hate mail and Googling and all that stuff. It's real, it's real, it's like a survival tactic for them. So this guy Scott ran um, this clinic and his previous credentials included residency at the Agape Psychological Clinic. Yeah, agape, as in how you would describe a power bottom's anus. <laughs> Another dick-shaped carrot or an anus-shaped carrot. Um, so, so this website uh, promised to cure a quote-unquote unwanted same-sex attraction, and it specialized in emotionally disturbed boys. And so I read this and uh, just had this sick feeling in my stomach. And that's when my dad turned to me, took off his glasses, said, I've already booked several appointments for you. I will be driving you down to this clinic every week. And so um, I didn't really have much of a say in the matter because, uh, one, I was emotionally drained, and two... Um, I was still feeling the shame, and that's the kind of shame that like makes you overeat or uh, apply to grad school. Um, it's like, it's like ultimately, you know, it's not good for you, but you do it anyway. Uh, and it was the same kind of shame that days before with my mother uh, uh, made me feel the blood flush from my face, my eyes widen, my face going limp, uh, just totally paralyzed. So. A week later, my dad and I make our first trip down to Colorado Springs to see Scott, and the drive down is painfully quiet, just like our meals. And then once we finally get to Colorado Springs, uh, we meet Scott, and expectations of him I didn't even know I had were completely shattered. He was this tall, bald, like boringly dressed man, and going in, I expected some uh, like repressed Kinsey Five. Um, <laughs> Just a closet case uh, who was just, like, peddling this false hope. And he uh, was just this devastatingly straight man, it seemed, who led me into his office that was decorated with devastatingly straight furnishings. Um, It's just a small room, about the size of, like, like half the size of this stage. Uh, The walls were painted, like, green-gray. Everything was in neutral tones. The furniture was tacky. Um, And on the walls were his, like, diplomas. They might have been fake. And, uh, like, a couple of shitty Bob Ross paintings. And so he sat me down and uh, started our first session by asking me if I wanted this experience to be secular or Christ-centered. 
because he specialized in both. And I told him, um, secular, because I'm not religious. And then in the back of my mind, I thought, but wait, if he does both, and that just means the secular experience is a secretly Christ-centered one. <laughs> and anyway, and that's, uh, that's when I noticed on his desk this framed picture of him and what looked like his wife and two kids who were about my age. All of a sudden, this like unevolved lizard brain part of me wanted that for myself. I thought, oh yeah, like I want that. I want to be in my own version of that picture someday with a happy family and maybe that never intersects with a gay lifestyle. And so all of a sudden that picture became sort of aspirational to me and I thought, you know, I can get through this weird crazy therapy if I can get my life looking anything like that photo. And so then this weird thing started happening where I actually enjoyed the therapy with Scott. And the reason being was because those first two sessions, we didn't really talk about anything gay related. It was just like pretty solid therapy, um, actually, where I made like a few breakthroughs um, with like my self-confidence and the way I verbalized my emotions or the way I was mindful of myself. And um, Scott would like regularly ask me things like, or tell me things (laughs) that were, uh, for example, uh, yeah, you're just so much smarter than you realize or so much more capable than you realize or just get out of your own way, and um, I agree, you should have been cast as the lead in Anything Goes. Um, and and I, would, I would enjoy these, yeah, well, you know what, in that show I was typecast as one of the Asian stowaways. It was horrible. So, these therapy sessions started out pretty, pretty good. I mean, I would leave them feeling better than I did going in, And then another weird, pleasant surprise that came out of this was that the drives to and from the center back home were also very nice as well with my father. We found ways to fill the silence. We had like idle banter going on between us. We cracked jokes. And um, weirdly, it felt new to both of us because we had never had that kind of candor before. And so uh, we would make pit stops at diners or get snacks at gas stations and just talk. And we were just like two guys on a road trip uh, every week. And so... And this sounds so cheesy, but like uh, it was like for the first time, uh, it felt like my dad and I were finally friends. And in some weird way, I had Scott to thank for that. And then things took a dark turn when it was about our fifth or sixth session. Scott and I were in the middle of some exchange, and I had like mumbled through a sentence. And Scott asked me to repeat back what I said. I did, and then I followed it up with, um, "Oh, but I'm I'm so sorry. I mumbled. Like I'm oh, I'm sorry. Like in that frenetic uh, but like soft-spoken way." which is still my bread and butter. Uh, But anyway, I... (laughs) So I apologized. I said, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he snapped. Why are you saying you're sorry? Why are you apologizing? And I froze because he had never talked to me in that tone before. And there was just this pregnant pause, and then he finally kept going. He said, apologizing too much is a sign of weakness. Don't apologize for things when you haven't done anything wrong. Apologizing is not attractive which is a weird thing to say to your therapy patient. Um, but looking back, it made sense because if ex-gay therapy is in principle reverse engineering like your outward expression as a gay man, then like attractiveness, I guess, to him was like his way of molding me into like this hetero ideal. But it was just a very bizarre moment and all of a sudden therapy started to feel a little disturbing. I left the sessions feeling worse than when I went in. And then I just thought that, you know, maybe Maybe this wasn't worthwhile. Maybe there was a better way to sort of make sense of all my feelings. And also he was making me feel bad about something that I shouldn't have felt bad about in the first place. So that was weird. And that's when Scott started to finally 
pathologize my sexuality. It was the next week when he asked me to talk him through a recent time that I had been attracted to a man. And all of a sudden, I felt the room get a little smaller. I noticed for the first time it was this windowless, four-walled, horribly, shittily decorated room. And I obliged, even though I was uncomfortable, and I said, okay, well, yeah, one time, a couple weeks ago, I was out uh, at lunch, um, and then I saw this guy who sat down at a table next to me, and he looked kind of cute. And I thought he looked nice. And Scott says, okay, well, how did you feel? And I thought, I, I felt fine. And he goes, no, 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 no. How did you physically, physically feel? How did that attraction manifest in your physicality? And I didn't really know how to respond to that. Um, I said, well, I guess, you know, I was tired or something. And, and, and he asked me what my posture was. I said, I might have slouched a little bit. And then he snaps and goes, there it is. That's what I was looking for. And then he leans back in his chair and then goes off into this explanation where he says, same-sex attractions come from when we feel a lot of inner turmoil or when we're not feeling good about ourselves or it's at the mercy of these negative circumstances that are happening outside. And uh, I just want you to think about that, Bowen, the next time you feel attracted to a man. And at the time, I didn't have the knowledge to like totally debunk that logic because it makes no sense. Um, But I knew that something he said was wrong, and I walked out of that session, again, feeling very disturbed, tapped my dad on the shoulder, we drove home, I didn't say a word to him. The next week was our last session because I was moving away to college within the month, and I wouldn't be back in Colorado regularly. So there was this, you know, marked end to our time together. And then once I got to the therapy room, I could tell Scott wanted to end on some strong, impactful note. And so he sits me down and he says, Bowen, I hope you've given a lot of thought to what I told you last week about where same-sex attractions come from and how you feel bad about yourself and that's why you're attracted to men. So I have this perfect story that's gonna illustrate this for you that happened to a former patient of mine. And I go, okay, I listened and he started telling the story. Uh, He said, Bowen, this patient of mine was driving around the highways of California and uh, it was late at night and he was trying to get home to his wife and kids and all of a sudden he got lost and he drove off and ended up in San Bernardino, which let me tell you, isn't somewhere you want to end up in. (laughs) And that's when I started to, you know, look for a Denny's and I ended up parking in a Denny's, got out of the car, sat down to grab a cup of coffee just to get me through the night. And then that's when I saw the waiter, who I thought was pretty cute. And then after I got the check, I left my number on a napkin, hoping that he would call me, and he did. And I met up with him later. But Bowen, I want to tell you that it's a shame that my patient... And then he stops. Because if you didn't notice, he slipped very seamlessly into the first person. And it was very clearly obvious that that was a story about him and not some former patient. He made it sound like this happened pretty recently, and it made it all the more mortifying when he caught himself slipping so that I saw his face, and I saw that the blood flushed from his cheeks, his eyes widened, his face went limp, just totally paralyzed. And I saw the same shame that I felt when my mom caught me in that cybersex chat. And it was the same shame that led me to Scott in the first place that made me think that I was so desperate enough that there was a hope for a different life. And in that moment, I thought that um, you know, being gay isn't something you can change. And 
even if you want it to change, you can't change it. And the fact that I was sitting in that room with him meant that I wanted to change it, and I couldn't change it. And so Scott was really mortified. It was the last time I ever spoke to him or saw him. It was a very awkward goodbye. And whether or not he was tacitly admitting to having sex with Denny's waiters on the side um, <laughs> remains to be known for sure. Who knows how often he does that. Um, but... I went home that day and just knew in my own heart that uh, that shame wasn't strong enough to sort of change this thing about me and that it wasn't even worth having in the first place. So I shed that pretty quickly after that last session and um, obviously the therapy didn't work. Um, <laughs> I'm here, I, am, I have zero shame about being gay. Oh my God, you guys, it's the best. It's. <laughs> Give it up for gayness. Um, it's just made my life so much better. And my parents to this day still don't really approve. But um, if there's one thing I wouldn't trade in that experience of ex-gay therapy would be <laughs> the drives with my dad. Because, again, we were friends for the first time. We had bonded meaningfully. And since going through ex-gay therapy, uh, my family and I, we've said I love you to each other more than we ever used to. Um, and we mean it, all of us. And um, I'd like to think that me trying ex-gay therapy was my way of making an effort to understand my parents. I'd like to think that someday my parents will make an effort to try to understand me. And I'd like to think that somewhere Scott is having sex with a Denny's waiter. And that he doesn't have to feel ashamed of it. Thank you. feel the sweat forming in the palms of my hands and a pit growing in my stomach as I sat in the back seat of an old Mercedes-Benz, which was being driven by North Korean officials. I could see a large figure looming in the distance, and I knew where they were taking us, and I didn't like it one bit. I had just arrived in Pyongyang, North Korea with my father and our good friend, Paul Kim, the airport officials had checked our passports and the visas that we had secured in Beijing, and then they immediately confiscated our passports. I remember it felt a little like being locked in the trunk of a car, and the only way that you could get out was if someone let you out. It was 1997, which was just a few years into a terrible famine that North Korea had experienced, where some estimates say that over three million people had already died of starvation. And we were there to deliver food and medicine from my dad's humanitarian organization, which was set up for the sole purpose of bringing aid to North Korea, that and essentially to bribe the government into letting my dad see his family. My dad was separated from his family when he was only 12 years old during the Korean War. And his parents had sent him and his older siblings to the South while they and his younger siblings stayed behind since the younger ones were too small to travel. 
And it was during that trip that the border between North and South Korea was closed. And he didn't know what happened to his family. He didn't know if they were dead or alive. And he basically grew up like an orphan on the streets of South Korea. And then in 1986, you know, after he had immigrated to the States, my sisters and I were all born here, the North Korean government somehow managed to locate him. And they informed him that his mother and younger siblings were still alive and that his father had died during the war. And they were inviting him to come to North Korea and to see his family. Now, by this time, my dad was a very well-known pastor in the Korean community, and it's very likely that they wanted to use him for propaganda. And despite the fact that the North Korean government had a reputation for kidnapping people, and my mother's tears and protests and concerns for his safety, he was determined to go. And after 35 years, he was reunited with his family and able to see his mother before she died. And he had made several trips since then, each time bringing this desperately needed money and medicine to his family. Earlier that year, I remember my dad sitting me down on the edge of my bed and saying, you know, Christine, I'm getting older and I'm not going to be around forever to take care of my family. The second generation, you girls and your cousins, you've never met our family in North Korea. It can be dangerous, and each time I go, there's always a risk. Your sisters are married and have children, but you, you're single. And I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying, if you get kidnapped by North Koreans, no one's going to miss you. But, you know, I didn't care about the risk. You know, this was my father's homeland. You know, I grew up hearing stories about North Korea, not the crazy place that's depicted in the news, but the North Korea of my father's childhood. And here was a whole side of my family that I had never met before and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to actually meet them. I mean, at this point, you know, nothing could keep me away. We were driven to this large plaza at the base of a bronze statue of Kim Il-sung, which was well over 60 feet tall. And his arm was stretched out in this gesture of benevolence over the city of Pyongyang. And as we were led into the plaza, Paul, our friend, leans over to me and whispers, just watch your dad and just do whatever he does. I remember there was a man in a suit standing at the front of the plaza with a microphone and dramatic music was playing in the background. There were North Korean soldiers with rifles surrounding the plaza around us. And the government officials um, handed us flowers and they lined us up with other people who were there, but they put the three of us uh, front and center in front of this statue. I watched my dad and just followed his lead as he walked up to the base of the statue and placed the flowers at the foot of Kim Il-sung. And as we walked back to our place, he said to Paul and I, when they tell you to bow, don't bow, but just bow your head and pray for North Korea. And we stood facing this image of this dictator who caused so much suffering and death among his people. 
And at that moment, the man speaking gave instruction for everyone to bow, and everyone lined up, bowed deeply, except for my dad, Paul, and I. And we just stood straight, bowing only our heads as we prayed for North Korea. And I remember seeing angry whispers and displeased looks from the government officials, but no one said a word to us as they led us back into our cars. Driving through the streets of Pyongyang, it was unnaturally quiet. And there were very few cars out as we drove to the hotel. And we were passing what felt like concrete building after concrete building after concrete building. And the few people who were actually out walking were almost always walking alone. And as we pulled up in front of our hotel, my dad leans over and whispers to me, look over at that tree. Behind it, you'll see a woman in a yellow sweater. That's my sister. I'm not sure if the officials even knew that she was there or what they would have done if they had known that she was there because North Koreans live in this constant fear of punishment and imprisonment and even death for what seems to be the most minor infractions. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see this woman in the yellow sweater watching us get out of our car and yet unable to approach us. We had requested to be taken to a number of different places, out to the countryside so we could see the places that had been hit worst by the famine, um, an orphanage. Um, we, of course, wanted to see my dad's family. But instead, we got the Kim Il-sung tour, you know, Kim Il-sung's birthplace, Kim Il-sung's university, Kim Il-sung's tomb, which was his old administration building. And we walked into this huge cavernous room that was completely dark, except for this single creepy red light that was shining on his embalmed body in a glass case. And no one looks good in red light, especially if you're dead. It was a, just a creepy environment. And morning, afternoon, and night, they would just talk incessantly about Kim Il-sung, their glorious father, and his son, Kim Jong-il, and how much they loved the people and provided for them, you know, all of their achievements, their teachings, their philosophies, and just on and on and on, they would drone about Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. And after a while, I just began to tune them out. And I was feeling the minutes slipping away and running out when we would have to get back on that plane and away from our North Korean family. Well, the day finally came to meet them. And I remember stepping out into the lobby of our hotel when I saw my aunt with the yellow sweater come rushing towards me along with my other aunts and my uncle and all of my cousins with their arms stretched out, you know, crying, hugging me, nearly tearing me apart. And we were all just laughing and crying like it was the first time and the last time that we would ever see each other. And I was able to see up close that my aunt had this moon-shaped face and a wide smile and these eyes that were sad and merry at the same time. And she would not let me go. I met my cousin Hak Chal, who was this tall, good-looking young man with chiseled features and a mop of black hair. And between my terrible Korean and his terrible English, somehow we were able to communicate with each other. 
and he would ask me a million questions about the U.S., you know, what it was like. He asked me questions about God and whether I believed in God or not, or whether I believed God answered prayer. And when I said that I did, he just laughed hysterically and would say, that's nonsense. But then he would stop and say, well, I don't know. They only teach us one thing. And then there was my sweet cousin, Kyung Ah, who was just a few years older than I was, and she was pregnant with her first child. Everyone said that we looked like we were twin sisters. She didn't speak any English at all, but I remember how she would shyly hold my hand as we walked along. We went to my aunt's apartment for lunch, sitting down at these long, low tables on the ground. And they brought out two bowls of naengmyeon, which are cold buckwheat noodles that North Korea is famous for. My dad would always say when we were growing up how much he missed the naengmyeon that he used to eat in North Korea. After a few moments, we noticed that no other bowls of naengmyeon were being brought out, just the two that were placed in front of my father and me. And that's when we realized that they had saved up all that they had for just these two bowls. There wasn't enough to go around. And I noticed Kyunga with a roll of bread in her hand, which was likely given to her because she was pregnant. And we pleaded with them to share with us. You know, we could each have a bite to eat, we told them. But they refused. And we begged them You know, how could we possibly eat these noodles in front of them when they had nothing to eat? But they wouldn't budge. And I realized then that for them, this might be the only chance that they could ever give something to us. You know, they didn't know if they would ever see us again. And we didn't know if we would ever be allowed to come back again. These two bowls of noodles represented all those years that we had missed together as a family. All of the memories that we were never able to have. You know, these times of laughing together and sharing dinner together and having holidays together, of births and marriages missed. Their joy in seeing me for the first time. You know, their gratitude to my father for helping them to survive. And I realized then that there is a dignity in being able to give to someone that you love. And that there's also a grace in being able to receive something from someone who loves you. And so my dad and I ate those noodles and we slurped up every last bit of broth and we told them how delicious it was and how we had never had such amazing naengmyeon in our lives. And then we went back to our hotel room and we just cried like babies. The next morning, they came to our hotel to say goodbye right before we were about to leave for the airport. And I gave them everything I had, you know, my clothes, my jewelry, my toiletries, as if I could somehow import some kind of hope and meaning into these objects and and into their lives. I didn't know if this was going to be the last time that I would ever see them. Now, whenever I read about North Korea in the news, the first thing that I think of 
is not their bizarre, crazy threats they make to incinerate the U.S. or South Korea with nuclear weapons, or the rows and rows of soldiers marching in formation, or that 60-foot statue looming over the city of Pyongyang. Instead, I see a woman in a yellow sweater standing against a backdrop of gray. I see Hak Chal's earnest face and his hunger to know what was out there beyond the prison that he lived in. I see Kyunga holding that roll of bread and those two precious and costly bowls of noodles offered in love. question. How many people belong to a family? Okay, good. Good. Lots of you. Some of you just fell from heaven. Um, So you know that belonging to a family can be nerve-wracking, mostly because families bring together people who shouldn't be together at the same place at the same time. (laughs) Now, I belong to an Indian immigrant family. We didn't come straight from India to America. My family, over the generations, we moved from India to East Africa, where I was born, then to England, where I got my accent, and then to America, where, you know, I'm, I'm here. And um, that means that I grew up with a version of Indian culture that is a hundred years old, very conservative, very old-fashioned. And one of the things I grew up hearing was Nimisha, Merbani, Tugar ni Izat Rakte. I don't know if there are any Gujarati speakers out there, <laughs> um, but what the, I'll translate just in case there aren't. Um, <laughs> Nimisha, above all else, remember to keep your family's honor. Well, When my family came to America, they saw that many of the Indians here were professionals, and neither of my parents went to college. So to sort of maintain the family izzat, and also to belong, it became very important to my parents that their children, me and my brothers, that we needed to study well and marry well. And this was actually code for become a doctor, or marry a doctor. (laughs) Now, my chances of becoming a doctor were unfortunately quite slim because I am a world-class fainter. I see one drop of blood and I can drop 90 degrees. So that was likely not going to happen. So it became very important that I find a nice Indian doctor to marry. Which leads me to another question. Has anyone ever been treated by an Indian doctor in the room? Anyone? Anyone know of anyone who's been treated by an Indian doctor? So it should be everyone. So, right, so there are a lot of Indian doctors out there. I only needed one. I couldn't find one. I didn't. So you can imagine my parents' disappointment when I announced to them I wanted to marry 
a nice Jewish boy from Chicago named David. And just in case you can't imagine my parents' reaction, I thought I'd bring it in for you a little bit. So my dad was actually very calm and collected for the most part, except for one very bad day. We were driving, we were on a mountainside, and we were actually in the middle of nowhere. And he grabs the wheel, I grab it back because it's dangerous, he grabs it, he says, Nimisha, pull over. I didn't pull over because it was scary. <laughs> Leave me on the side of the road to die. <laughs> I just want you to know I did not leave my dad on the side of the road to die. My mom, her reaction was long-term, piecemeal, and delivered in doses on my voicemail. <laughs> Hi, it's Nimisha, leave a message. Bye. Beep. Nimisha. <gasps> Nimisha. Like, no words necessary. <laughs> now, I should say, David heard one of these messages, and he said, Nimisha, you're not doing this to her. That's just a reaction. She could have a different reaction. Now, the dutiful Indian immigrant daughter in me heard that, and I thought, that's dumb. Um, <laughs> Because you know when you're an a child of immigrants, when your parents are upset, it is absolutely your fault and your responsibility to fix it. But the adult in me was thinking, well, I wonder, like, maybe they could have a different reaction. Like, that would be weird. That would be different. Um, and, you know, so things were bad. Everyone was upset. No one was happy. And people would say, Nimisha, are you sure you want to go through with this? It doesn't seem like it's going so well for, like, anyone. You look like hell. You know, I mean, and it was a good question. And I have to say, I was as surprised as everyone else by this whole thing. David certainly didn't look like the person I was going to marry. So my parents, they would have been happy with like a double MD, PhD, with one of those like Indian mustaches. Let me show you. Like that. <laughs> See that? Like that would have been so hot for my parents. I was thinking... I don't know, I was thinking like a dot-com mogul, like a yoga practice on the side, Shahrukh Khan lookalike, like that would be good. I, I could get into that. Didn't happen. I met David on the job. He was wearing these like gold rim glasses from eighth grade. And it's not like this is a sick cougar story like he was in eighth grade. No, he was like in his 30s and he's wearing these gold Room glasses, and he also has a red jacket. Like, who in their 30s wears a red jacket? But I'm thinking, you know, he's from the Midwest, and maybe his mom put him in red jackets. Like, I'm thinking, like, there are lots of dangerous combine harvester, like corn processing machines. You wear red jackets for safety, and he just, like, never got over it. But there was evidence along the way that he was indeed the right choice for me. 
I'll give an example. Very, very early on, he made me tea. He knew I was from England, and he knew I liked tea. And he called the Whole Foods, and he had them order Devonshire cream. He picked up fresh scones from the bakery, and he had a particular brand of tea, which I'm looking at, like, tea. He said, why are you looking at that tea? I'm looking at the tea. Like, why did you get this tea? Do you know what he said? I know that's your favorite. I hadn't told him that. He had simply paid enough attention to know. And no one had ever paid that much attention to figure out what I liked and what would make me happy. But he did. So, to his credit, he was right. My parents do start to have a different reaction to David. We get to the point where we're actually going to have a nice Indian wedding. And Indian weddings can be fancy, and they can be long. So just for an example of fancy, when my brother got married, he got married two months before I did, he arrived to the wedding site riding a white horse. <laughs> now, we thought we should make use of what we had on hand, and we thought that for our budget, it would be nice if David would simply arrive on his white feet. <laughs> Which was great, and it was cheap. And, you know, they can take a long time. Ours is going to last two days. The first day is set aside. Uh, the groom's family does their thing. The bride's family does her thing. And the, the two aren't really supposed to meet. But, you know, my parents thought, David's marrying into this Indian culture. He should, come over, come on. Come enjoy 5,000 yards of Indian culture. Come on. So, you know, David comes, he's by himself, he comes and like we're having these ceremonies and he participates and along the way my mom says she's making something for David. She's making something. Like I don't come from a craft making family. Like in my family growing up, craft meant here's a pile of your dad's shirts, put buttons on them. Like that was craft. So she's making something and I'm, I, I feel like my nerves are relaxing, that this is good. And what she's making for him is a loon. And a loon is a, it's like a small brass vessel. You put beads in it, you cover it with cloth, and you decorate the cloth. And it is used as, well, it's used as a massage object, which sounds crazy and bad, but it's actually just the groom spends so much time in the wedding sitting on a small platform, reciting Sanskrit shlokas that like a little cousin sits behind him with this loon, shakes it, makes nice jingly sound, and like rubs it down his back. It's like something made for the groom's comfort. So at some point, you know, over the day, she's like, you know, and since I know there are no Gujarati speakers or translators out there, she's asking for red powder, and someone goes and gives her red powder, and it's very nice. She finally announces she's done. And everyone goes quiet, she comes up, she hands David a loan. And I look at it. And that is when I go into a cone of doom. And all I remember from this moment forward is sweat and fear. Because I am not kidding. What my mother has spent the morning putting on the lawn for decoration for her Jewish son-in-law to be is a swastika. <laughs> A swastika. 
the room falls silent. It is like someone has died. No one says anything. Finally, my mother, she's kind of, David, you're not liking? <laughs> my dad, sensing that my mother's feelings might be hurt, steps in. David, do you understand? In the Indian culture, swastika is a very good thing, means home, means good luck, good Indian weddings, always having swastika, it's a good thing. <laughs> well, this is not convincing, it's still quiet. David says nothing. I am still in my cone of doom, sweating and afraid. At this point, I'm like, I'm not even going to marry an Indian podiatrist. My life is over. There's like nothing I can do. My uncle sensing that the ship is sinking, he steps in. Now he is an engineer by training. He collects swag from like technical conferences. He has a collection of like plastic visors. But now suddenly he's like a cultural anthropologist. He steps in. Hey, Mr. David, you know, Native Americans, they are having swastika for decoration. Very beautiful decoration. You can find swastika in art all over the world. Very beautiful. <laughs> Still nothing. David says nothing. I, I can't take it. My mom. David, are you worrying about those Nazis? <laughs> very bad people. Well, that's good. I was glad we agreed that the Nazis were bad people. You know, they are stealing the swastika from Indians. They're stealing it. Finally, David says one word. He says, Mom. Mom. He has never addressed my mother as mom before that moment. And it changes everything. I get it. David gets it. My family gets it. Suddenly, we come together committed to having a swastika-free wedding. <laughs> David says, Mom, you know, we can't have swastikas at this wedding. Okay, my dad checks the invitations. There's no swastikas there. We start checking the saris. There are no swastikas there. We check my mendi. Okay, we are swastika-free. The next day, we do indeed, to honor David's family and protect the izzath of his family, we have a swastika-free wedding, and it's great. And, and we have been married for 10 years. <laughs> And when I think back to that moment, that one moment when David said, Mom, I'll tell you what I got. We weren't just an immigrant family. We didn't just belong to a Jewish family. We didn't just belong to an Indian family. We belonged to an American family.
rather be alone asleep, not weary for a break tonight. Don't be a ghost, don't hurry for the lights. The canopy of lies that keeps you from me. This is Risk. This is Air Review behind me now. And we just heard from Namisha Ladva, who you can find at namishaladva.com. And before that, a story by Christine Lee. Folks, if you'd like to help us out, if you'd like to help Risk keep being able to share such important stories as these, come on over to patreon.com slash risk to see all the wonderful bonus content we have over there for you. And becoming a member is the way to help this independent operation stay afloat. Everyone on our team thanks you. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now, our final two stories on this week's episode are extraordinary. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Britt Adams, an unforgettable story that he shared uh, when Risk was in Denver, Colorado several years back. But before that, a story from Lauren Tom, who you can find on Twitter at LaurenTom9000. She shared this with us when Risk was in San Francisco a few years back. And here is Lauren Tom now with a story we call, What Would You Do? Oh, thank you, Kevin. Oh, good. 
good, it's good. And nice and low. You guys are so amazing. Thank God. Oh, okay, <clears throat> here we go. Both of our cars screech to a halt past our respective stop signs in the parking garage of the Beverly Center, an upscale shopping mall in Los Angeles. We both want to turn the same direction and have executed the California roll, which is to say we didn't really stop at all. It's 2003. I'm a young mom and actress living in Los Angeles. I, you know, just bought a rhinestone collar for my dog, Vivica, at a store called Pet Love, and I don't care about this little thing that happened. I'm in a good mood. So I signal to the lady in the gray Buick to go first, but apparently she doesn't want to go first. Why is she sitting in her car trying to bore a hole through my forehead with her eyes? Okay, now she's getting out of her car and slamming the door. Oh my God, here she comes. She's about 70 years old with short red disheveled hair and pasty white skin. Her eyebrows point up like she shaved them off and painted them back on so she could look more sinister. <laughs> it's working. She looks like a scarecrow on crack. She's at my door. She's motioning for me to get out of my car. Okay, this is bad. <laughs> I can feel my hands shaking as I shift my car into park. I hate confrontation. And besides, I actually think this broad could seriously kick my ass. I carefully step down from my SUV so I don't fall off my four-inch platform clogs. And she still stands a good six inches taller than me. I'm five feet tall, so I've been wearing platforms since I could walk. This, this is the 2020 version, see? <laughs> um, oh my god. Um, I wish that I had worn pants instead of this micro mini skirt. My white tank top with the words open 24 hours written in gold glitter is not helping either. I probably bought that shirt at Forever 21, thinking it could actually work. But that outfit looked like I was going for Forever 14. Either way, not my finest moment. These were definitely not fighting clothes. I might as well have been wearing a shirt that said, come get me, I'm a poofball. <sighs> I can feel myself leaving my body. I'm now just a head, sort of floating up here. I stand about a foot from her, and I brace myself. She points a bony white finger at me, and then, like an overwrought version of Katherine Hepburn, she yells, look where your car is! And suddenly, I go from being terrified to wanting to bust out laughing, and without thinking, I yell back, look where your car is! And she goes, you're over the line. I say, you're over the line. She said, you're driving too fast. I say, you're driving too fast. Oh my God, I could have done that for a half an hour. I was having so much fun. <laughs> I mean, this is like all those moments when I wished I could have just come up with something when I'm being confronted and look, I'm doing it. It's liberating. This scarecrow squints her eyes. Katherine Hepburn has left the building and has been replaced by Clint Eastwood in drag. She takes 
a big inhale and says, you chink. Whoa. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that one. I can't very well yell, you chink, can I? I'm, I'm always caught off guard by this kind of attack because it had never occurred to me that I looked different from other people. I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, an all-Jewish suburb. I had been to 84 bar mitzvahs by the time I was 13 and knew the whole Baruch Atad Anoy Eloheinu prayer. My mother raised me Catholic, and my father believed in ancestral worship, so my spiritual upbringing was sort of a religious poo-poo platter. But in my heart of hearts, God was Charlton Heston as Moses parting the Red Sea, and I was one of his ardent followers. So when the kids started calling me Ching Chong Chinaman, I used to think they were talking to someone behind me, because I thought I was a white Jewish girl with a name like Rachel, Rebecca, or Esther. I notice a button on the lapel of her beige trench coat. It says WWJD, and in smaller letters beneath, what would Jesus do? (sighs) Okay. Sorry. She didn't just say that, did she? I'm pretty sure that's not what Jesus would do. I can't deal with this ugly side of the world. I just want to go home and watch Teletubbies with my three-year-old Ollie. Oh, come on, Lauren. Just do it for your son. I, I mean, don't be so weak. Don't be such a blank nothing. Just say something. Say anything. Say fuck you. Just stand up and open your mouth. I raise my head. I look at her straight in the eye, and I say, nothing. I stagger back to my car as if I'd been punched, and I wish she actually had punched me because my recovery time would have been faster. Her words stayed with me for months, maybe years. Even when I was little, I knew that uh, sticks and stones would be a better choice for me because words have always hurt me. I was so shaken that I felt like our cars had actually crashed and that I just suffered a trauma. So I drove straight home and I called my meditation teacher, an 86-year-old East Indian man named Eknath Iswaran, who came here as a Fulbright scholar and taught English and meditation at Berkeley in the 60s. He taught me how to meditate, and no one could center me more quickly than he could. I told him what happened, and he told me to breathe and then envision three gates that would act as barriers to letting thoughts in or out. Our thoughts about others, their thoughts directed at us, and even our thoughts about ourselves. No thoughts are allowed in or out without first passing through these three tests. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? So let's review. She called me a chink. Is that true? Well, I guess technically it is, but you Asian American would have been nicer. Even you Oriental would have been better, but that word always makes me think of rugs. 
Was her comment necessary? No. Was it kind? No. Not unless you're a masochist. And uh, what about my response? I guess since I didn't say anything, I'm in the clear. But still to this day, I don't know what response would have seemed appropriate. But perhaps, you know, it's necessary to say something true in a moment like that. For example, my son, Ollie, when he was in preschool, a little girl bit him. And so the teacher sat them both down and had Ollie say to the girl, that hurt me, and I didn't like it when you did that. And then she sent the girl home to show her that that behavior is not appropriate. I wish I could have given that lady a timeout in the corner of the garage until they just banished her from Beverly Center until she learned to control her tongue. I asked my sister-in-law what she would have said, and she said, well, if you were going for racist, you hit it. And my best friend said she would have just said, shame on you, and that would have sufficed. But that didn't feel quite right either. Like, I'm not sure that there really is an appropriate response. I wish I could feel myself wanting to take the high road like Michelle Obama, but I know that I'm a human being and I'm not always capable of that. So I'm going to cut myself some slack for having no response. But since I tend to be a kind of life-by-committee sort of person, I'd like to invite you to share with me what your response might have been. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at laurentom9000. You can contact me there. Just make sure it passes through the three gates. Thank you. He doesn't walk very good, does he? Thumper? Yes, Mama. What did your father tell you this morning? If you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. I hate rabbits. When I was six months old, I was adopted from Seoul, South Korea by an entirely white family from the South. A mom from Alabama, dad from Tennessee, a cowboy-loving, football-playing older brother, and a Southern Belle, just perfect baby sister. Now, just to put into perspective how white and Southern my family actually is, I have over 50 extended family members in Alabama that I have never met before. <laughs> Disregard the hundreds upon hundreds of members that I have in pretty much every Southern state, but just in Alabama, 50 that I had never met. <laughs> Insane. Every year for Christmas, my family and I always listen to Randy Travis's holiday season Christmas special. <laughs> because he has the voice of an angel. It, it's true, he does. <laughs> and to put the cherry on top, my family still owns a big-ass dairy farm in McDonough, Georgia, that I grew up on for the majority of my teenage years. I had white friends, white teachers, white coaches, grew up in this entirely white culture, and I was happy. You see, growing up, my brother and my father, they were my heroes. You know, I wanted to be just like them in every single way. 
Now, my father was very strict, very formal, hence me calling him father, but he taught me the values that I still hold near and dear to my heart today. He showed me the value of hard work from being a farmer to going all the way through college to having a corporate job to now being a senior level position at a Fortune 500 company. Like, I am the man I am today because of him. And my brother, he, he was truly, still is, my superhero. Like, everything he did, I wanted to be. The way he acted, what he said, the way he, anything. I just wanted to be him. In fact, I wanted to be like him so bad that through all of middle school, I wore a cowboy hat, boots, and a big-ass belt buckle to school. <laughs> it's true. Because my brother thought it was cool, and I wanted to be just like him. In December 2016, my family and I all gathered in Nashville, Tennessee for our biggest family reunion ever. 250 of my closest relatives all gathered in my grandparents' house. Yeah, big family. And at this point, I was a senior in college, about to graduate, and I hadn't seen my immediate family in almost three years. So, needless to say, I was excited. So I got off the plane, got into the rental car, drove to my grandparents' house, and the first person I saw out of the car was one of my aunts, who I hadn't seen in almost 15 years. So I closed the door, run up to her, go, hi, auntie, how's it going? Open up my arms for a big old hug. And instead of, you know, giving me the normal response, the hug, my aunt shuts her eyes as tight as she can, flexes every muscle in her body, and goes as stiff as a board, waiting for me to walk into the house. Now, immediately I think, okay, here come the Asian jokes, you know, time to time it happens, whatever, not a big deal. And I look around to see if anyone's noticed anything, but they'd all gone inside, so I didn't really pay much mind and I walked inside. Now, then I was at the kitchen with my brother, waiting for some food, and my little baby cousins just run up to me, about 15 or 20 of them, with their tiny jaded hands, and I go, hey kids, how's it going? I give them high fives. And simultaneously, they all take their hands, put them to their eyeballs, pull their lids back, and the entire room laughs. Okay, that's not very funny, right? Like, what's going on? Like, I know there are jokes and there are backhand comments, but I've never seen anything like this. Like, what's going on? I turn to my brother for some support, and he's right behind me, just hunched over, just dying laughing. And he finally comes to and he says, hey, man, that was some funny shit, right? It happens every year. All right, let's go get some food, man. It happens every year? That shit was funny. I don't understand. Am I just jet lagged? I'm just so confused, I don't. My family's never said anything like that. What's going on? And so my mind continues to spin and I try to get just all the food I can and just go and sit down so I can think. But before I can even get to the cold turkey, a swarm of our family's dogs just run into the kitchen, knocking over chairs and then run out to the other side of the dining room. But before that last dog can get to the side, one of my uncles from the back of the line says, hey, Britt, there go the dogs, don't go try to eat them. And I kid you not, 
It's like someone just landed the biggest punchline at Madison Square Garden because what seems like the entire house just erupts with laughter. And I'm just standing there going, what the actual fuck is happening? Like, what, what is this? This isn't normal. I, I don't remember anything like this. Why y'all laughing? And so I quickly just grab my plate, get some silverware, go to a corner table by myself and just sit and I think. I think for about an hour and slowly but surely all these memories start washing over my mind and I begin thinking of every family reunion, every family event, holiday that I've been with my family and slowly but surely these two distinct pictures come to mind. The picture of what I thought my life was and the reality of it. And the reality of it is these backhand comments were a lot worse than what I thought they were. You see, you all have to understand, right? Like, for 22 years, these were my people, right? This was my family. Like, I thought it was normal for every single one of your family members to make fun of you because you failed your driver's license test because it was just inevitable. I thought it was normal for all of your friends to make fun of you and laugh when you won a video game because you just had the Asian gene. Hell, my head coach for soccer in high school gave me the name Chinky and everyone caught on to it and I thought it was funny. It sounds absurd, but you just have to understand this was my life. This was my environment that I was in. I didn't know any better. And when I went away to college, I very quickly realized that most families don't say these kind of things. Most friends don't make fun of you because you have squinty eyes or yellow skin. And on top of everything that was happening at my family reunion, my head just started spinning and I just got so angry and frustrated that I just, I had to leave, right? So I get up, walk to the dining room table where the majority of the adults are, including my father and mother. And I walk over to my father and I say, sir, I'm sorry, but my head is just really killing me right now. I, I think I'm just going to go to the hotel and lie down for a bit and come back. And I look at my father, and he's got these glossy eyes, red cheeks. He's about four or five Jack and Cokes in. And he's sitting in his chair, holding his glass, and he leans back a little bit and says, Son, come on, we just got here. Have a seat. Get a drink. We were just talking about how Trump is finally going to make this country great again. And I said, Yeah, Dad. Uh, I'm just really tired, my head's killing me, I'm just gonna go lie down for a bit. And I mean, I didn't even vote for Trump. And immediately I knew I had fucked up. Because my entire red-minded family stopped talking and all eyes were just on me and him. My father puts down his drink, leans forward in his chair and says, <clears throat> oh, what was that, son? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear you. And I knew I had fucked up, so I was trying to just revert the conversation as fast as I could. And I said, sorry, Dad, yeah, yeah, I just, my head hurts. I just want to go lie down. What the fuck did you just say? My father had gotten up, and he was toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with me. I could smell the whiskey breath on him, and I looked around to see if this was really happening, and my entire family had the exact same expression on their face. 
I just tried and I tried and I didn't know what to say until finally all of these thoughts and everything just poured out. And I finally just said, yeah, dad, I didn't vote for Trump. What's the big deal, huh? It doesn't even matter. And the next thing I know, my father grabs me by my shirt collar and hoists me into the air. And I'm screaming and I'm shouting for anyone to just help. Like, what is going on? I'm in complete shock. And he takes me and he throws me into a 72-inch plasma screen TV. My body hits the floor. The TV falls on top, crashing. Glass shards and plastic are cutting all on my body. And before I know it, my brother's on top of me beating the absolute shit out of me. Punch one, punch two, and I am just in complete shock. I don't fight back, I don't try to defend myself because that's my fucking brother. And while he's beating on top of me, my father comes over and he starts pounding the shit out of me. Punch one, punch two. And then blackness. I wake up on a hospital bed. Now the doctor said that the only reason I survived with just 15 broken bones, including a broken collarbone, a dislocated shoulder, and torn ligaments and tendons in both of my legs, was because the neighbors across the street had heard the commotion. And they had come over, and when they saw what was happening, they threw my brother and father off of me while my entire family just watched. I was in the hospital for three days, 72 hours, and I, I don't remember too much because I was on so many pain meds, I kept going in and out, but I do remember the first time I came into it. The doctor came in and he said, is there anyone that we can call? Anyone that we can contact because you won't be able to leave here by yourself? And I said, yeah, um, my father, he'll come get me. So the doctor leaves and he comes back a couple minutes later. And he says, he's not picking up. Is there anyone else? Yeah. My mother, she'll come get me. My sister? My brother? No one came. No one came, and for those 72 hours, I was just by myself, laid to a bed with an IV drip, just with my own thoughts. And for those 72 hours, I actually convinced myself that that incident was my fault. <laughs> that if I could have just been more like my brother, right? If I could have been more like my father, if I could have just forgotten the jokes, just blended in. If I was just whiter, you know? None of this would have happened, and my entire life wouldn't have been turned upside down, and my superheroes wouldn't have turned into my supervillains. 
Now, it took six weeks just for me to be able to fully walk again. And I can't tell you exactly when it happened or where I was, but eventually I realized that shit wasn't my fault. I realized that just because I wasn't from here and I didn't have white skin and I didn't necessarily fit in physically, that should have no indifference as to who my family is and how my friends treat me. So on August 21st, 2017, I packed up all of my things, talked to the very few friends that I still had, reached out to my family who didn't respond, and I moved. And that's what I've been doing for the past year and a half until five days ago, I moved here. <laughs> and I have no friends here, so if anyone wants to get a drink later, let me know, because... <laughs> But in all seriousness, I moved here, and I gotta tell y'all, for the first time in my entire life, I finally feel happy. <laughs> for the first time in my life, I feel like I don't have to just fit in or be someone I'm not or conform to some bullshit. And I love it. <laughs> I really do. Now, don't get me wrong. I will always be a Southern kid at heart. I will always eat my grits and gravy, listen to Randy Travis and Kenny Chesney sing Silver Bells. I will always say yes ma'am, no sir, or gender non-binary pronouns. I will do it. Because <laughs> that's just who I am. And yes, my life may not be the best and I'm going through some things with my family, but that's okay. Because I'm working on it and time will tell and that's fine. But I cannot wait for what Denver has to show me and what I can make of this life. Thank you.
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is John Legend behind me now. And we just heard from Britt Adams, a story that he shared years ago when Risk was in Denver, Colorado. This has been the first of four of these Asian American Lives episodes that we're going to feature on Thursdays in May to celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Don't forget to look up nonviolentpeaceforce.org and our dear friend Kalyan Mendoza on Twitter and Instagram at Kala Mendoza. That's K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A. You'll also find all that information in the show notes and we'll have more of my conversation with Kala on these next few episodes of this Asian American Lives series. Folks, don't forget to look up our school. We teach storytelling as well at thestorystudio.org. Now, a lot of those workshops are over Zoom, so you can be taking them from anywhere in the world. But we also do corporate workshops for staffs of businesses or organizations. That's all at thestorystudio.org. You can look me up for one-on-one storytelling training at kevinallison.com. And be sure to check out Risk's social media presence. We're at Risk Show on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And everything else you might want to know about the show is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>